Well, amen. We'll reach for your Bibles as we have our scripture reading for this morning. Pastor Bruce will be beginning or continuing his series, and we'll be picking up and reading out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. If you are in need of a pew Bible, you can find one in front of you, and you can locate the beginning of that on page 1,161. Now, if you follow along with me as I read, Ephesians 4, 25-32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son you sent to give us to be in right relationship with you, God. Thank you for the opportunity we have to grow in relationship with you. I pray this morning that you would be with Pastor Bruce, give him the words to speak, and that we may be open and honest and ready to hear how you seek unity between us, God. In your name, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to a a beautiful Sunday morning. I am so excited, glad that you are here as we continue in our series on relationships. And we are learning uh, over the course of this four-week series how sin threatens to ruin our relationships. But But hallelujah, praise the Lord, we are also learning at the same time how the power of God's grace can restore our relationships as well. The first Sunday we talked about how relationships are are ruined by our pride, but are restored when you humble yourselves. In fact, what we find is that this is the foundation of of really all our relationships, uh, uh, being Humble, humbling ourselves before God, because when pride rears its ugly head, there is bound to be conflict and all sorts of problems in our relationships, and it's only through humility that the grace of God can begin to work in our lives and our relationships. Last Sunday, we talked about how relationships are are ruined by our corrupting talk, as Paul calls it, or in other words, what we call rotten talk. But thankfully, it is restored when we make our mouths a means of grace and not grief. And it's just, it is amazing to think that through our communication, through our mouths, we have the capacity to partner with God and give grace to those that are around us, to give grace to people in our lives. And so we are continuing this morning. We're going to talk about conflict here, which is bound to happen. When you put two selfish, sinful people in the same room, 
Conflict is inevitable. That's why you find conflict oftentimes in the same home, under the same roof. You find conflict on the same team. You find it at the same job or even in the same church. Nowadays, you find it on the same airplane because people can't get along and there's rage everywhere, it seems like. And so when you put two selfish, sinful people together, conflict is bound to happen. It might be as simple as, as a personality conflict might be as simple as a conflict of interest. Or it can even escalate into physical and verbal conflict. And how we respond to these conflicts in life, in our relationships, will often determine if the relationship is ruined or if it will be restored by the grace of God. And so here's what we're going to see today here in Ephesians chapter 4. This is the big idea that we're going to look at. Relationships are ruined when you live with unresolved conflict, but are restored when you resolve conflict God's way. Now, it's no doubt that we live in a culture that is filled with conflict. In fact, in the midst of, of this culture of sharp words and heated arguments, road rage and physical altercations, Jesus says something absolutely radical to us who want to follow him in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so the contrast is huge between what we find in our culture and what Christ is calling us to. In the midst of this divisive culture, Jesus calls for peacemakers, relationships where, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we know is the love chapter for relationships where love bears all things, where it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. In other words, relationships where love never ends. And as Christ followers, we are called to this. We're called to be countercultural when it comes to responding to conflicts, when it comes to resolving our conflicts, dealing with conflict that is bound to happen in all of our lives here, where we are to be characterized not so much by the conflict, but rather by Christ and his grace that we have experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Ken Sandy wrote a book by this title, The Peacemaker, where he describes the contrast this way. And I'll just quote it here to you. He says, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ. And then they bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage repentance and reconciliation. So I would just ask us here for a moment to pause and stop and think, does that characterize you? Is there a relationship that you wish sounded more like like that? Imagine what it would be like to be the kind of person who works through conflict God's way instead of the culture's way. Imagine what it would be like to have relationships that are characterized by grace and peace instead of resentment and arguments and bitterness. 
That's God's desire for those of us here who know Jesus Christ. He wants us to, to show the world the powerful and practical difference that His grace makes in our lives and relationships. And so with all that in mind, let's focus on what Paul says now here about resolving conflict God's way in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 is a very relational chapter. In fact, Ephesians 4 is all about the way Jesus makes people new in Jesus Christ, in their relationship with Christ, and new in a very practical manner, especially in our relationships. The Apostle Paul calls believers to live out this new identity in Christ in the very beginning part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what Paul says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk now in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, so there we find humility again, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And then Paul calls believers to to put off our old self before we came to know Jesus Christ and to put on what he calls this new self. Now, it's not a new improvement of your old self. It's a new self in Jesus Christ, your new identity in Christ. And he calls us to this in verses 22 and 24 when he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then immediately, verse 25 marks a transition. In this chapter, and it marks a transition in explaining how our new lives in Christ should be expressed now in our relationships with one another. And there are basically, what we're going to look at this morning, four commitments that reflect our new life in Christ when it comes to resolving conflict God's way. So here's the first commitment. Number one, be honest. Just be honest. Look what Paul writes in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you do what? Speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Before, because we are members of one another. And so it's interesting that Paul first identifies honesty as a key factor to God-honoring relationships. And especially when it comes to resolving conflict. In fact, the command is pretty simple. He says, since you have put away lying or falsehood, number two, speak the truth with each other. And then he tells us why. Because we belong to one another in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, Christ-centered relationships do not thrive in the absence of a commitment to truth-telling. Think about it. The very first conflict between God and humanity, and even the very first conflict within humanity, happened in what context? It began in the context of a lie. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and there in the Garden of Eden, the serpent lied to Eve about the consequences and payoff of the choice to disobey God's command not to eat of the forbidden fruit. Most of you know the rest of the story. They sinned, they ate, conflict comes in, conflict between Adam and Eve, 
conflict between God. God doesn't let them off the hook, so he searches for them. He finds them hiding in the Garden of Eden. He calls them out. He confronts them. And he confronted Adam and Eve about their sin. And what does Adam do? Blamed Eve. What does Eve do? She blames the serpent. Nobody wants to tell the truth. And so the first sin committed, the first conflict between God and humanity and between Adam and Eve was rooted in a lie. Mark it down. There is no real fellowship Be, with us here, within your small group, within a, a personal friendship, it, within your relationships as a family, within your marriage. Doesn't matter. There is no real fellowship. There is no authenticity. There is no intimacy in a relationship without the foundation of truth. Being honest is a key building block for relationships, and the absence of truth creates greater conflict. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor and author over in England a few years back, writes this. He says, what makes fellowship possible is trust. Mutual trust, mutual reliance a feeling that you can trust one another and therefore you can speak freely and openly one to another. But the moment the element of lying comes in, fellowship is destroyed. You are no longer free. You do not know how much you can believe or what you can believe. You do not know how much you can trust the other person. So dealing with conflict God's way requires this commitment to the truth. We must be willing to be honest about the problem, about the conflict. We have to be willing to be honest and share with the person who has offended you, who has hurt you, and even willing to be honest and deal honestly about your own contribution to the problem, the issue, the conflict. So one way we resolve conflicts, God's way, not the culture's way, is we speak the truth. Now, most of the time, being honest isn't hard until there is actually a conflict between people. In fact, when we are hurt, when we are offended, when we're angry, and especially within the home, in a marriage, and your spouse asks you if you are okay, what do we say? Well, we lie. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's good. Didn't even notice it. All the while, it's brewing inside of us. Stop lying. Listen, you have to be honest. It did matter. And you're not fine right now within your spirit, within your heart. If you're angry, if you're offended, you're hurt, be honest and tell the truth, but make sure as we learned last Sunday, that we speak the truth in love and with a whole lot of grace. When we tell the truth, we can do it in one of two ways. That is either hurtful to the other person or helpful to the other person in the situation. Most of us are only familiar with the hurtful ways of telling the truth. Why we yell, we scream, we accuse we all of a sudden become very judgmental. But the Bible tells us to be gentle when we speak and to seek to restore broken relationships. 
And here's what's interesting. Not only do we lie, but because we are hurt and we haven't been honest about our own hurt with the person who hurt us, what do we start to do? We start to avoid that person. You know it. And if you live with that person, we still avoid that person, even though we live under the same roof, within the same house. We just keep ourselves busy at home. We leave early for work. We stay later at work and come home later. Anything to avoid talking to our spouse. And if we work with that person or if we worship with that person, we walk the other way. We We check our phone when they walk by. And if they do talk to us, we give them the shortest answer possible. Why do we do this? Because we don't want to restore a broken relationship. We don't want to deal with the issue honestly. And so we just keep avoiding that person. This is not the way God calls us to handle our conflicts. Listen, this may be how the culture deals with conflicts, but as Christ followers, we are to be different. We are to be honest. Now, before moving on, here's a question. Who do you think you're going to have the worst conflicts with? Yeah, you got it. The people closest to you. And here's why. Notice this in your notes. The severity of a conflict is often related to the proximity of the offender more than it is related to the magnitude of the offense. Not always, but oftentimes. You see, it's the people closest to you that can wound you the deepest. This is, this is why you can oftentimes tolerate an offense from an acquaintance, a stranger, somebody you quasi-work with. They, they do something that irritates you, even offends you, and, and you, you, you'll handle that. You'll, you'll tolerate that a little bit. And then at the same level offense you get home, happens at home from your wife or your husband, and you're like, oh, It's like just, why? Because of the proximity of the person who offended us. See, random people can write something critical about you on Facebook, and we can can blow it off. But when it's a friend who's who's writing a critical post, well, well, that hurts. That's not so easily blown off. So expect your worst conflicts with those who are closest to you. And the first commitment to resolving conflict God's way is to be honest. The second commitment, number two, is to control your anger or check your anger. You see, before I can resolve conflict with another person, I must first resolve the anger within my own heart. Because you will never be able to resolve conflict God's way if your anger is not in check. Paul says in verse 26, look at it with me. I hope you have your Bibles open. Looking at God's word, looking at what God says through the Apostle Paul. And he writes in verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now notice immediately, Paul didn't say you never get angry. But when you do, he says, do so without anger, without sin. So anger is not always sin. We see that here. And not all anger is wrong all the time. In fact, we see in the Old Testament that God became angry at the sinfulness of his people, at the wickedness of his people. In the Gospels, we see Jesus became angry over the misuse of the temple. So there is such a thing as what we might call righteous anger, which God demonstrated, which Jesus demonstrated, and it's possible even for 
us to demonstrate as Christ followers. However, however, most of the time, most of the anger in our lives is not righteous anger. And so I would just caution you, as I caution myself, on being self-deceived about your anger. I would caution you about finding ways to justify your sinful anger. Why? Because, no, listen, listen, because sinless anger among sinful people is rare indeed. You see, most of us here, including myself, most of us here experience anger in one of two ways, either as a sudden, impulsive, outward anger or a deep-seated, slow-burning internal anger. In fact, Stuart Scott, in his booklet, Anger, Anxiety, and Fear, he describes these two kinds of anger. Notice this in your notes. So there is the external anger that blows up in rage. And what makes external anger so dangerous is a flare suddenly powerfully and irrationally. It's the powder keg type of anger. And the powder keg anger just explodes. And anyone in its path is usually taken by surprise. It's like throwing a bomb in the living room while your family is watching TV. Boom! And the damage is done. This kind of anger, it just explodes normally, a lot of times with yelling and screaming, perhaps even slamming things around, punching the wall, cursing, telling someone off, attacking verbally, even attacking physically. This is the external anger that just blows up in a rage, and we, we all know people like that. And if you live with somebody like that, it's like beware. You're, you're just on edge because you never know. When they hit that, you know, beware. But then there's another type of anger. There's the, the internal anger that clams up in resentment. Internal anger also is known as passive-aggressive anger. It shows itself in being frustrated, being irritated, being disgusted, glaring at the one they're angry with. This kind of crockpot anger, it simmers and boils in resentment for a long time. These kind of people tend to be in denial about their anger. They tend to be in denial about their stewing, but denied anger is like a poison. As one author writes, he says this, when willpower hinders rage, anger smolders beneath the surface, and the teeth of the soul grind with frustration. It can come out in tears that look more like hurt. But the heart has learned that this way, this may be the only way to hurt back. It may come out as silence because we have resolved not to fight. It may show up in picky criticism and relentless correction. It may strike out at persons that have nothing to do with its origin. In other words, what he's saying is this internal anger turns deadly when it lingers and morphs inside of us normally into, in the words of the Apostle Paul, as he writes later on, into malice and hatred and bitterness and resentment. In other words, we begin to nurse our grudges and bite our time, fantasizing about our revenge. However, anger is not the only problem. Because Paul does something rather interesting here. He actually connects our anger 
with how we talk. Did you notice that? As this passage was read for us by Jeremy? This is why it's crucial to check our anger, to deal with our anger in a biblical way, to control our anger. In fact, notice this in your notes, why it's so crucial. Because uncontrolled anger leads, often leads, to uncontrolled speech. Think about it. Much of our rotten talk, as we looked at last Sunday, springs from a heart that is angry. Angry at life, angry at the situation, the circumstances, but most of the time angry at somebody. It's built up, pent up anger. How often do we find ourselves regretting words spoken in the quote heat of the moment? This is why Paul tells us in verse 29, later on in this passage, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up. Listen, when we speak with an angry heart, it does not build up anybody. It tears down. And then he continues that it may give grace to those who hear. And then Paul, as if we haven't figured this out by now, he links our rotten talk with our sinful anger in he tells us in verse 31 at the end of the chapter as to remind us, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. So dealing with anger is crucial because you will never be able to resolve conflict biblically or even effectively if your anger is not in check if it's not controlled by the Spirit of God that dwells within you, because it's only by the power of the Spirit of God that is more powerful than your own anger. The third commitment to resolving conflict God's way is simply to resolve it quickly. Resolve conflict quickly. This is the most common reason conflict resolution breaks down. It's simply because we have a failure to do anything about it, to resolve conflict quickly. In other words, most of the problems with conflict resolution is simply the unwillingness to do anything about it. But doing, listen to me, doing nothing does something. Like, what does it do? It opens the door for bigger and greater problems in our lives is what it does. When we don't deal with it quickly, it opens that door for more problems, greater problems, bigger problems. This is why Paul writes what he does in verses 26 and 27. Look at it. Look what he says. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? And give no opportunity to the devil. So why is this so crucial to resolve conflict quickly? Here's the reason why. It's in your notes. Because Satan is seeking a place in your heart called grudge. And if Satan finds this place in your heart called grudge, he will enter it, he will enter your heart, your life, and ruin your life with all manner of bitterness and resentment. 
So when do you know? Here's the question. When do you know if anger is turning into a grudge for bitterness to dwell in your heart? Well, one of the first signs is when you start replaying in your mind all the wrongs done to you over and over and over again. You just rehearse it all the time. You're driving to work, driving home from work, and you're just, you're replaying it. You're taking a walk by yourself, it's being replayed. As you lay in bed, you're stewing about it. Can't even go to sleep, your mind is so working. When you are constantly reliving how you were hurt, how you were offended, you're becoming a bitter person. And if you can remember all the exact details of the wrong done to you, you are becoming a bitter person. Listen, holding a grudge is like trying to hurt the other person by drinking a cup of poison yourself. So it's no wonder Paul says what he says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, does that mean we don't sit on our anger and, and, and allow Satan to turn it into bitterness? Instead, what Paul is saying here, we seek to resolve it quickly. We, we talk it out. We, we work it out, not months later, but as soon as possible. So I know some of you are wondering, what about that phrase when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger? What does he mean by that? Does that mean we have to deal with our anger and the conflict even before we go to bed? Well, it's a pretty good principle to live by. There's a reason Paul says that. So it's a principle that we ought to strive towards, strive for in our relationships with one another, especially relationships within the home, within a marriage and a family. That we, we, don't, we don't go to bed angry. We, we strive to work out conflicts. Now, I understand reality doesn't always allow that to happen, but here's the deal. It's a principle we ought to strive for because if you go to bed angry, what, what happens? Oh, come on, we all know because I do it myself. We stew about it, right? We stew in bed about it. In fact, we are laying next to the person. Our back is turned away from the person, and our, we, our eyes are closed, but our mind is racing, and we are stewing over it. Am I the only one that's done that? <laughs> Being a little too vulnerable here. So good, we all know what we're talking about. Here's the idea. Here's the principle Paul's telling. It means means we need to deal with our anger and resolve conflict as quickly as possible. Why? Before Satan finds a place called grudge in our hearts. As someone once said, let the day of your anger be the day of your reconciliation. So Paul is calling us as Christ followers to resolve conflict quickly. As believers, listen, we are to have peace who, let let me, I said it wrong. As believers who have peace with God, we should now long to have peace in our relationships with one another. This this is what Jesus calls us to. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 25, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly, he says, with your accuser. Here's the point. We should hate the effects of unresolved conflict on our relationships. And we we should long for peace-filled relationships where conflicts are dealt with in a manner that brings joy to our lives, joy to the other person, and most of all, it brings glory to God. So how do we do this then? Well, that brings us to our final commitment when it comes to resolving conflict God's way. Number four, we do this by demonstrating God's grace. We demonstrate God's grace, which is now summarized by the Apostle Paul this way in verse 32, where he says, be kind to one another. Now, I want to encourage you, that one another there, you just think of somebody in your mind, perhaps even you write the name of that person. Listen, if you're married, we all need to write over one another the name of our spouse. First and foremost, we need to write our kids, we need to write our parents, we need to write students. Basically, we need to write everybody. And I know that within context, the one another is believers in Christ. I, I get that. Applicationally, who we're in relationships with. So he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what, what does that look like? What does God's grace look like in, in specifically in resolving conflict? Well, let me give you five ways. We'll end here. Five ways to demonstrate God's grace in conflict resolution. So number one is to, first of all, see conflict as an opportunity. Whoa, that, that's mind-boggling. I've never heard anybody frame conflict as an opportunity. But this is what we see here. We need to see conflict as an opportunity to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to change how you see conflict. Because I'm telling you, the culture, they view conflict one way. But we're not, we live in the culture, but we are not unbelievers. We are Christ followers, and we are called to view this differently. Most of us see conflict as as bad, as something negative. It's like a plague to avoid at all costs. But here's the deal. We live in a broken, sinful world, and unless you live in a cave, you cannot avoid conflict. Why? Because you can't avoid people. So the idea is not to necessarily always to eliminate all conflict in our lives because it's bound to happen. The issue is, how do I respond to conflict? So we need to see it as this opportunity now to me, as a Christ follower, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we need to see that the same gospel that saved you and is changing you to live like Christ. Listen, nothing, nothing is more powerful in showing others that Christ, you know what, he really does make a difference in my life and in how we handle conflict. Let's work through this. I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to initiate and start. So rather than letting conflict turn you into this angry, bitter person, let me encourage you to let conflict be an opportunity to now live out the gospel and treat people the way Christ has treated you. 
Christ is incredibly kind and tenderhearted toward us. Christ is gentle toward us. He's not malicious. When we were God's enemies, he did not get bitter toward us. He treated us with kindness and sent his son to forgive us. And now we are to treat people that we are in conflict with the same way that God treated us. We are to be kind. We are to be compassionate and forgiving. And in so doing, the gospel is seen now. The gospel is tasted by others through the way we treat them in conflict. So that's the first way to demonstrate God's grace. You see conflict as an opportunity to live out the gospel. Number two, when possible, overlook the offense in love. Listen, in many, 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 many situations, the best way to resolve conflict is just simply to overlook the offenses of others. Listen, if I can encourage you, just dealing with every conflict, dealing with every offense, it's not practical. It's not even necessary as a Christ follower. Listen, you don't have to comment on every little infraction. Instead, the Bible calls us to deal with minor offenses by overlooking them in love. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, by, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3 13 through 14 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So when we do this, when we overlook an offense, we are actually imitating God's extraordinary grace toward us. Psalms 103. 8 through 10 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. And since our God does not deal harshly with us when we sin, we should be willing to treat others in a very similar fashion. Listen, overlooking an offense means to deliberately decide on your part Not to stew over it, not to dwell over it, not to talk about it, not to let it grow into bitterness in your own heart. Now, that does not mean, that does not mean that we must overlook all offenses or all sins against us. Listen, there there are times, very legitimate times, that you need to speak up and be honest and talk to the person who has offended you and hurt you, where where there's a conflict. But there are also times when you just need to let it go. Just let it go and move on in love. Number three, third, seek their sanctification not your vindication. When you are wrong, there's just something inside all of us here that craves justice. 
You want to see vengeance poured out on the person who hurt you? And oh, do you feel good? In fact, you almost feel godlike when you repay them with your wrath. But when you hold a desire for vengeance, you are giving an opportunity to the devil to gain a foothold in your heart because you are now, in that moment, you are trying to play the role of God. And that's what makes this next verse so important. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul basically is saying, look, justice will be served in this world. Think about this. Every sin committed, every sin committed against you will be avenged in one of two places either on the cross or in hell. So you and I, we can leave it to God. Vengeance, Paul says, is his. So I can put away all that wrath that is pent up inside of me, which now frees me to seek their sanctification, not my vindication. Number four, initiate reconciliation through forgiveness. As Christ followers, we have an obligation to initiate reconciliation in broken relationships. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? Let me read it to you again. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is telling us, he's urging us. Basically, he's saying, you take the initiative. Don't wait for them to make the first move. Listen, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you're the offended or you're the offender. Jesus is saying, it's always your move. It's your move. Reconciliation only takes place by way of forgiveness. Listen, there, there, there is no other way to reconcile a relationship other than through forgiveness. True forgiveness, listen, it is a, a miracle of God's grace. No doubt about it. But there are no enduring relationships. There are no restored relationships without forgiveness. Remember, the alternative to forgiveness is what? It's bitterness. But when you forgive, here's what happens. Bitterness is gradually eliminated out of your heart, and it is now replaced with the kindness of God. Think of it this way. Bitterness is the fallout of an unforgiving heart. But kindness is the fruit of a forgiving heart. And so when you try to squeeze kindness from an unforgiving heart, it's only going to drip bitterness. In fact, when you cannot show kindness to the person who has hurt you or offended you in the past, you know unforgiveness is there lurking somewhere in the shadows of your heart. So know this, the fruit of your actions always tells the condition of your heart. 
Number five, don't give up. Don't give up in conflict resolution. Give God's grace a chance to triumph. Before you give up on a relationship, before you give up on that person who wronged you, give the power of grace and opportunity to triumph. You've got to believe in the power of God's grace. It's God's grace. If it's powerful enough to triumph in your relationship with Him, then it is certainly powerful enough to triumph in your relationship with other people. So don't give up. Give God's grace a chance to triumph. Now, I want to end by simply urging you to apply what God says here in Ephesians 4 about restoring a relationship. So in a very practical way, here's the question at the end of your notes coming up on the screen. Are you living with unresolved conflict with anyone right now at this moment? Are you living with unresolved conflict of any kind with anyone? If so, then the application here is to go to that person and seek to resolve the conflict God's way with God's grace. Now, I understand there may be some conflicts where you have tried to do that. And that's why Paul also tells us, as much as it is possible, be peaceful with all people. So sometimes we can go and we can try to resolve conflict, and the other person just doesn't reciprocate in any fashion or form. In fact, they just put up a wall, a defense, and it goes nowhere. Listen, you can walk away with a clear conscience, and you, and you can walk away still offering forgiveness to the person too in an attitude and in actions. So the idea here is to go. Now, if it's a conflict that you can overlook, then that's going within your heart to the cross of Christ and allowing what happened on the cross, the gospel, to impact your heart in such a way where you now can overlook an offense in love. So in in a metaphorical way, you're going. It's just you're going to the cross, and you're allowing the cross now to impact your relationships and how you interact in a conflict. So not every conflict has to be dealt with. Some conflicts you can choose to overlook. But I'm talking about the kind of conflicts where it's broken your relationship. Go. Go. And seek to resolve the conflict God's way with God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you once again for your word. Thank you for what we have here in Ephesians chapter 4, a very practical chapter that Paul gives to us on relationships and how to have God-honoring relationships. And even when we deal with conflict and we come into conflict in our relationships. So Lord, as Christ followers, help us to be first and foremost people of grace. May our mouths be a means of grace, and now may our actions be a way of grace through the power of the gospel. Lord, would you do a work in us and through us and in our relationships that only you can do. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.